We're doing a series at the moment called Righteous. Uh, we've been doing this series for several weeks already. And in this series, we've been able to look at some themes that run right from the Old Testament all the way through through the Psalms. You hear it coming up again and again and again. We see it very prevalent in the law. And then we see it uh, being mentioned, almost the heart of it in the poetic sense, coming out in the Psalms and the Proverbs, etc. Uh, and then in the New Testament, how it's embodied and how it's lived out and, and, uh, and how it ultimately points to Jesus and our righteousness in Him. So this series is about knowing how and why you are right with God and why you can be confident and free in your relationship with God. That's the biggest problem that we have as people is that we constantly feel like we're in an arm wrestle with God trying to uh, earn His favor and earn His blessing and earn our, our, our way into heaven. And naturally we do this. And if we then have a good week, okay, we feel like we're great with God. But if we have a week where things don't go so well, it robs us of our confidence before God. Now, how are we ever going to fulfill the purpose that God has for our lives if we're not confident in our righteousness, in how He's justified us? How can we serve God if we're not even sure if we're worthy of standing in His presence? This is, this is the thing that hinders us from following and serving Jesus the way that we're meant to, is that ultimately we feel unworthy. We feel the weight of our sin. We feel the, the weight of, of our thoughts and our, and our shortcomings. And that's why the gospel speaks to the heart, our heart of sin and our heart of unworthiness, and it declares us worthy. That's what Jesus did through the, through the cross and, and through the, uh, what's what the gospel says to us. So I'm going to share a message with you today called Tutor. Uh, on this theme of righteous. And I'm going to go to Galatians chapter number 3 and verse 23. And if you have your Bibles, you can read with me this morning. It says, Now before faith came, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our tutor. The law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't need that tutor. We don't need that custodian. We're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Before, we needed a tutor. We needed a schoolmaster. We needed a custodian. We needed a guardian. But now you're a child of God. Now things have changed. I'm going to pray for us this morning. And, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about this scripture and this theme of, of tutor. Uh, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that right now we can just uh, settle ourselves in your presence, that we can uh, open our hearts and minds to receive from you, Father. We thank you that it is your spirit that speaks and leads and guides. We thank you for the richness of your word. We humble ourselves before your word, Jesus. And we ask that you speak truth to us. Remind us, convince us, persuade us this morning of your righteousness, of your love, of your grace. And help us, Jesus, to walk with you more intimately and more freely than ever before. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So um, it's quite amazing to see. You really see this come out when you have kids. But it's quite amazing to see how we as people are all born as rebels, right? We're just natural born rebels Every single one of us. Just hands up if you have kids this morning. All right, anybody got kids? Here's the thing with kids. I've got three boys, a four-year-old and twin two-year-olds. You don't have to teach them anything about sin. 
they just sin all on, on their own, right? They're just born little sinners. You don't have to teach them how to rebel. They, they are rebellious by nature. You don't have to teach a child how to throw a tantrum or try and assert his own will, right? Kids from a very, very, very young age know how to do that. And as I said, I've got three boys, and uh, the, the best tantrum thrower of all of my boys is the youngest one, Jude. He is definitely by far, even though he's the smallest, he is the feistiest kid I have. He is a, a, just a ball of energy and emotion, and he's a little bit manipulative. And if he wants something, he takes it, even if he has to bite someone to get it. Uh, that's Jude, right? He's just, he wakes up every morning at like about 2 a.m. to get into our bed, and it's like a full-on party from the moment he wakes up. He's not sleepy or grumpy. He's just, the other morning he jumped into our bed uh, with a Ninja Turtle mask and a shell and naked at the same time. That's how we were, <laughs> like a naked mini Ninja Turtle. That's what we were woken up by in the middle of the night. Um, that's Jude. So Jude has this way of throwing a tantrum, and it's, and it's the best uh, of all the tantrums that I've, of my boys. What he does is, the first thing he does is, if you tell him he can't do something that he wants to do, is he stares you down. No emotion, blank face, but he just looks at you. The next thing he does is, drop whatever's in his hand. So it doesn't matter if it breaks, doesn't matter what it is, he'll just, he'll just drop it on the floor. And I'm actually visualizing this as I'm saying it. Um, he'll just drop it on the floor. And then the final thing he does is that he'll fall over like he's dead. Just like fall dead on the ground. And he'll be like face down and you can poke him. I often like roll him with my foot. He doesn't budge. For like five to ten minutes, he's just, he's now dead Jude on the ground. Just like I'm, I'm pro protesting by removing myself completely from the situation. And, uh, and that's, that's what Jude does. He, 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 that's how he throws a tantrum. And all kids throw tantrums. We as adults still often throw tantrums. Um, and the Bible says in Proverbs 22:15 that foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. Right? So I'm, I'm not specifically talking about parenting today. I'm talking about maturity as a Christian going from a baby uh, to being a mature believer and what that looks like um, through this message called tutor. So Foolishness, the scripture says, is bound up in the heart of the child. We're foolish by nature. We're rebels by nature. We do the opposite of what we're told. The reason why we do things wrong is not because we don't know what's right. People often think is that you just need to teach people what's right. But the fact of the matter is knowing the right thing to do doesn't give you the ability or the, or the power to do the right thing. Have you ever found that in your own life? I mean, I have, and I'm going to be vulnerable and honest with you this morning, I have sometimes repented before I sinned for the thing I knew I was about to do. That's rebellious, right? That's, that's, that's how sinful we are. Sometimes you're like, well, God, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm about to do this. Please forgive me. I know it's wrong. I recently got for our four-year-old boy a chameleon, um, and we put it in this amazing enclosure and fixed up all the sides, and he knows the rules about that chameleon, is that he is only allowed to touch it when I'm around. I unlock the cage. It's, I've actually put a physical lock on it. He cannot take it out when I'm not around, because obviously he could hurt it or whatever. So we have this rule about the chameleon, and the other day I get home, and my boy comes, I'm looking for him, can't find me, comes downstairs, and, uh, and, and, and I'm like, Eli, what, what's going on? What are you doing? And we go up into his room, 
And we found that what he did was he used his Lego spaceship to essentially make a hole in the side of the cage and, uh, and then put his hand through. And he had been playing with that chameleon for hours, right? The thing was mouth open, gasping for air, you know, just like I, it must have been the roughest day in that chameleon's life. It, he was like, thank God you came. I didn't think I was going to make it, right? This, this chameleon. So obviously I was so upset with my son. And uh, I took him to the room and I closed the door and I, I kneeled down in front of him. I said, why did you do this? Why did you do what I told you not to do? And he just started crying. He knew he was in trouble. He had tears running out of both eyes. He's just like, and his response was so classic. He said, dad, it's not my fault. Tembi left me alone for too long. Like the nanny. He's like, it's the nanny's fault. She should have been supervising me. She knows I'm just four. And it's like, it's so honest because it's almost like he knows he's helpless. If you don't supervise him, he is going to do stuff he's not supposed to do, right? He's only four years old. He's like, I'm, he's like, he's saying, dad, I'm helpless here. I'm four and I need supervision. I can't be left alone. That's kind of what the scripture in Galatians 3 is actually saying. It's actually talking about supervision, that, that we as people needed supervision before faith came, that scripture says. It says before there was faith, we needed to be supervised. We needed to be watched over. We needed a nanny. We needed somebody that was going to restrain us and keep us from losing ourselves completely. So we'll come back to that before faith came. But it says before the faith came, we were held captive under the law that the law was our tutor, the law that was given to Moses, the rules, the Ten Commandments to the, these, these principles and these rules and these things to live by, they were a tutor that God had given us, a teacher. A tutor basically is a, is a private teacher or a, or a guardian or a schoolmaster. And what the text actually refers to is somebody who is a custodian who works for a family that watches over a child from birth to adulthood. It's not forever, but to watch over a child and to train it and to teach it and to, to try and restrain it, to keep it under God until it reaches adulthood. And the idea is, and this is obviously the same with parenting, that we can govern to a certain extent through restraint the behavior of a child until that child is an adult, and if we've done the job well, then hopefully they'll be able to govern their own behavior from then for going forward. So the law was a tutor to govern the behavior until we reached adulthood, the, the, the maturity of faith. Before faith came, we needed a tutor. When we had faith, we're adults, we're mature. Now we need to look after our, our own behavior, so to speak. The problem with the law, however, was that as much as it could restrain us and restrict us and keep us under God, it could not change our hearts. It could never change our hearts. And we weren't sinning because of external things. We were sinning because sin is in our heart. This is meant to lead us into maturity so that maturity can govern. This is kind of like like putting training wheels on a bicycle and 
until you learn to ride that bike. The law was like training wheels on the bicycle, but once the training, once you know how to ride a bike, how many of you know the training wheels will only hinder you? They're not going to help you. Once you know how to ride, once you've reached maturity, you don't need the wheels anymore because they will actually hinder you from riding your bike freely and expressing yourself freely on your bike. So spiritual maturity means faith. Before faith came, we needed a tutor. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor. Faith is spiritual maturity. It's spiritual adulthood. The more you trust God, the more mature you are. In the world, it's kind of like the more independent you become, the more, more adult you are. But, the, but in spiritually speaking, when it comes to our relationship with God, the more dependent we become. Not the more independent, but the more dependent the more we rely on God, the more we trust in what he says, the more we just believe. I had a conversation again with Phil Smithist uh, just yesterday. Uh, he's in Nigeria. They had a meeting in Nigeria. They had 50,000 people in a building by 5.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. You can see the photos. It's incredible. And I was talking to Phil, and, uh, and Phil said, just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you. We were talking about some stuff. He's just like, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you. Faith in the gospel, faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, faith in the Father heart of God. Faith is an issue of the heart. That's maturity. It's a heart issue. So the one thing, as I said, that the tutor, that the law, that a custodian cannot do, as much as it can restrict our behavior, it cannot change our hearts. It cannot change our hearts. And that's where our real problem lies when it comes to sin. We don't need a taskmaster. We need a change of heart. We don't need more rules and principles. We need a change of heart. Our issue is not a problem of will. It's not a problem of commitment. It's, not, it's a problem of heart. And we can't change our hearts. The law cannot change our hearts. And if our hearts cannot change, we cannot become mature. We cannot become adult. We cannot have maturity and faith. So God gives Israel, his people, the law to keep them in line, to keep them restrained until the maturity of faith came. But look at what happened. In Hebrews 4 verse 2, it says, For good news came to us just as to them, to those in, in, in Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And it's talking about entering into God's rest here. So here's the point. The law was supposed to lead Israel to faith in God. But because they didn't have faith, it didn't benefit them. In fact, it led them to have faith in themselves. They became self-righteous instead of righteous. The law was supposed to bring us to faith in Christ. So instead, the result is it's like taking a child who doesn't understand the heart of what you're trying to do and telling him that he has to do something. What does he do? He throws a tantrum. He rebels. An adolescent rebellion. And that's what we've all done. That's what we all do when we receive the law. Because we are still immature in our faith, we rebel against it. 
We rebel against the law. When we are given the laws, we do the opposite. We throw a childish tantrum. And even Paul said this in Romans 7 verse 9. He says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So the law literally revives sin in your heart. The Bible says in one place that the strength of sin is in the law. People think inherently, and this is part of our self-deception, we think we're good people. If you ask a person, you can go to anybody out there today, and you ask them, what do you need to do to get into heaven? They'll say, just be a good person. Just be a good person. And if you ask them, are you a good person? They'll go, yeah, I think so. I think I'm a good person. Like, you know, how do we rate ourselves? How do we rank that, whether you're good or whether you're not good? And normally what we do is we rank ourselves against or we rate ourselves against the worst, right? So we're like, well, I'm not Hitler. You know, I didn't kill six million people. I mean, surely he's going to hell. I'm fine. I'm like, right, I'm, you know, I pay my taxes. I have a job. Yeah, I don't live a perfect life, but I'm, I'm generally more good than bad. <laughs> and that's how, we, that's how we gauge or tell ourselves that we're actually good. And this is one of the reasons why we needed a tutor. God was going, okay, you think you're good. Okay, let me just quickly give you my minimum standard of goodness. Here's the law. And we look at it and we're just like, we fail it every day. The law was teaching us that we're not good. Essentially, the law is like a doctor that gives us the diagnosis. And the diagnosis over our lives is sinner, rebel, unrighteous. So the law teaches us how sinful we are. It's a tutor, but it cannot save us. It cannot save us. It cannot change our hearts. It cannot remove our sinfulness. It can only show us how badly we need a savior. And that's why the scripture says that the law was a tutor before faith came, bringing us to faith in Christ, showing us how much we need Jesus. It's an awesome moment when you get one of the best things that a Christian can do in their lives is get to the place where you give up. Honestly, the Holy Spirit will allow you to continue trying and failing until you come to a place where you can just give up and go, okay, okay, I'm not good. I, I can't save myself. I can't make my own way into heaven. Because it's in that moment that you can begin to trust in Jesus. So, Jesus, save me. Save me. Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins, but also from other saviors, trusting other things to save us. And when you get to that place where you simply go, Jesus, save me, that's when you've arrived at spiritual maturity. It's funny, though, how we rank maturity, spiritual sense. We think it's like angry old men with big Bibles that are telling people how many sinful things they're doing. That's, that's not spiritual maturity. In fact, E. Stanley Jones says that the more spiritually mature a person is, the, the less seriously they take themselves. Because you realize that it's all about Jesus, that it's about what he did for us on the cross. And this is why so many Christians struggle. Because rather than being dependent upon Jesus, they're living lives where they're constantly conscious of their own sin. Constantly evaluating themselves. Am I doing well? Have I sinned more or less? The idea is, is not to be conscious constantly of your sin, but of Jesus and your righteousness in him. Does that make sense this morning? It says, but now faith has come. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We are no longer to live according to the law. Why? Because we have become God's children. What does that mean? That means our hearts have been changed. We've got to believe that this morning. We're not trying to follow Jesus by taking a bunch of, of rules on a checklist and saying, can I, can I try very hard to do this this week? We are following Jesus wholeheartedly because we're his children. We love him and he loves us. We know the love of the Father. We understand the sacrifice of Jesus. We trust in what he did for us on the cross. So our entire lives are changed. Our hearts are changed. We have a new life, an adoption. We receive the Spirit of God on the inside. The Bible directly draws a contrast or a contradiction between following the law and following the Spirit, saying that if you follow the law, you're not following the Spirit. You're doing it externally according to rules and checklists rather than being led from a truthful place of authentic faith in God. And what God wants is not robots who check things on lists, but children to love and to know and to lead. That's what God wants. He wants your heart. And He wants you to walk with Him from your heart. Serving Him authentically from your heart. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into all truth. That's what the Spirit of God does. He guides you into all truth. Do we trust the Spirit to do that? Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. God leads his children. Galatians 3 says, you're no longer under the tutor of the law because you are now God's children. He wants to lead us as his children. This is maturity. No longer under the law, no longer the need of the guardian, but being enabled by a changed heart that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, faith has come. Before faith came, you needed a guardian. Now that faith has come. Now that your faith is in Jesus, we trust in the Father. We trust in Jesus. I want to just read one last scripture for you this morning, and I'm going to end on this. Colossians 2.18 says something so incredible, and, and I remember when the first time I got this, I read Colossians 2 again and again, literally, in every version I could find it. I just wanted to see it. And I want to encourage you to do the same this week. Colossians 2, 18 to 23 says this. It says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. You know how, how some Christians get weird. And they'll, they'll send you these Facebook posts about times and moons and, and angels and things and, and uh, you know, if you don't share, you're a child of the devil. I mean, I've literally saw one this way. Share the, if you don't share this, you're a child of the devil. If you type amen, you belong to Jesus. Your choice. You know, that kind of uh, a thing. Like, don't let people come to you. You know, I don't lose a moment's sleep over those things. Why? I let no one disqualify me. They insist on uh, asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions one translation says, they claim they have seen. These visions that they had of, of what's coming, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. 
and not holding fast to the head, capital H. That's Jesus. When Christians get weird and they get into it's this mysticism and it's this thing and it's this moon and it's this feast and it's this ritual and it's you're you're losing sight of Jesus. Because how do you get mature as a Christian? Not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, that's us, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. To be spiritually mature means to trust in Jesus in simplicity. And the moment we make Christianity about all these other things, we're actually immature. We're, we're, it's like an adolescent tantrum. Maturity says, I'm holding fast to the head. I'm believing in my righteousness. I'm not going to be disqualified. I'm not going to be dissuaded. I'm holding fast to Jesus. Listen to what it says here. This is so, so interesting. Verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, one translation says the, the elementary notions of the world. If you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Now just pause there for a moment. In other words, it says, if you've died to being worldly. Now if we read that, if I just stop there, you would think, yo, if we did to going to clubs and, and dancing on tables and getting drunk on weekends, that's surely what it's going to talk about. It's going to talk about all the, the sinful things that we're not supposed to do. That's how we died to the world. This is actually something very interesting. It says, if in, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings? In other words, dying to the world means trusting in Jesus for our righteousness, not trying to earn it by our good works. You want to be dead to the world? Stop trying to save yourself and trust in Jesus who has already died for you. It's worldly to try and find your righteousness in the regulations of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It normally puts in parentheses there, it says, according to all these things that, that, that perish with the use. Finding your righteousness in things that, that are what you eat or what you drink, those kinds of things are what makes you righteous or not. These things are according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an, an appearance of wisdom in promoting, this is Paul writing here, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Discipline, severe discipline. When you find a person who walks around and they're just so severely disciplined, you know, they always, I once remember reading a book on spiritual leadership. I was still in high school. I don't know why I was reading those books, but I, I read this book about spiritual leadership and it, and it said uh, that you, that the, the man of God eats right, sits up straight and does something else that I can't remember. Uh, but, but it's like this idea of if I'm going to be a man of God, I'm going to get it through severe discipline. And, and you start putting all of these, these weights on you that Jesus never intended to put on you because ultimately you're trying to save yourself or at least appear to have been saved through your works. Promoting these self-made, it looks like wisdom. It looks like wisdom. But this is what it says. 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. One translation says, in fact, they indulge the flesh. Here's what I'm trying to say to you today. That being sinful and being immature spiritually is more than the bad things than you, that you do, that we all know would be classified as sin. Sin includes the very, very good things that you do in order to earn your righteousness. Not just the bad. If I go out and I believe that by coming to church every Sunday and by feeding the poor every week and by praying a certain amount of hours and by reading my Bible a certain amount of times, that that's what sets me right with God, I have ultimately rejected Jesus and decided to save myself. And I've placed myself under the law, and the Bible says the law is a curse. Does it make sense this morning? All things that we do apart from faith in Jesus. This is why the Bible says that without faith, maturity, trusting in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. And anything that does not come from faith, maturity, trusting in Jesus, is sin. Anything, even the good things we do. So I needed to ask God at one point in my life to save me not only from my bad things, but from my good things. The stuff I took so much pride in. Yeah, I do that. I do this. I, I, I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I don't do the stuff that my friends do. I took that and I had to repent of it because I was ultimately trying to save myself. These are human standards of righteousness. It's immaturity. It's not faith. So the Bible says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the law. I heard somebody say, being under law means being oppressed by God's demand when you have no power to fulfill it. Trying to fulfill God's demand when you don't have the power. You'll either rebel against it or you'll forever try and keep it in your own strength. Either way, the letter will kill. John Piper said this, For us, the ladder of the law has fallen and become a railroad track of joyful obedience. This has gone from stuff, a demand that we were trying to lift in our own strength to us stepping back going, okay, God, I can't do it. Him making us righteous, changing our hearts, causing us to become his children. And now the thing that used to be this difficult ladder we had to tr try and climb, it's something we just sail on like a railroad track. track. And we, we fulfill the law, but we do it not in our own strength, but through the righteousness that comes through Christ. This railroad track of joyful obedience. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I hope that makes sense this morning. I hope that you can begin to see that your relationship with God is not a scripted thing. It's not a letter. It's not a rule book. It's a genuine heart. It's a, it's a, it's a father and a child. It's a, it's a love relationship. It's a journey. It's a walk. And on that journey, we are encouraged not to look at ourselves, not to look at the law, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what God's grace has enabled us to do.